So does uncertainty drive us away from God or towards a true search for God? And is doubt the opposite of faith or is certainty the opposite of faith? We've got a great guest today to talk about that exact thing. Author, pastor, theologian Keith Giles joins us today. He's been walking through this deconstruction of faith for a long time, and he has input of how we can look at the Bible through a new lens. A, a man who has loved the Protestant evangelical church for a long time and has been deconstructing for a long time, you're not going to want to miss this podcast. And also, don't forget, if you like what I do, we give hours and hours of free content out each week. These podcasts, our Bible talks, our Sunday community, our mindfulness moments, our unconventional conversations, TikTok lives, much more. And the way we're able to do that is through subscribers at my website, pastor-paul.com. Don't forget that dash, pastor-paul.com. Would you like to take a moment and check out the website and say, do I have it in my budget and do I have it in my heart to help out this month? Some of you can't, and we totally understand. I will be grateful to those of you who can. $5.99 a month helps a lot. $100 a month, whatever you can give, and you get some cool little perks along with it. So go to my website, pastor-paul.com. Check it out. I'll love anything you can do and love to you all. Now, here's Keith Giles our guest on the podcast today, talking about the opposite of faith is not uncertainty. On this edition of the Post-Evangelical Podcast, here from pastor-paul.com. Welcome to the podcast, and we are excited to have Keith Giles with us today. Uh, he's an author of the Jesus Un series, Jesus Unbound, Jesus Unexpected. You can check those out. And also, the new book is Sola Mysterium, Celebrating the Beautiful Uncertainty of Everything. There's the book. It's beautiful. Oh, I love the cover. Oh, yeah, thank you. And oh, so happy. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm I'm just really excited to have you on, Keith, because I'm a big fan of of your writing. It's been impactful on, you know, if I can use that word, deconstruction that we all use. It's been very helpful in in my deconstruction journey. So, so welcome. And I, I first just tell us about the book, and it's it's kind of shaping some of your con conversations right now with having to do with the uh, uncertainty of everything and how beautiful that is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the new book um, is really just uh, talking about how, you know, whenever we're talking about theology, we we really have no place to speak about our theology from a place of certainty. Um, you know, there's a very, very famous quote, the idea that um, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. So if you're certain about something, you're not talking about faith. Um, and because by definition, and this is sort of the thesis of the book, um, God, by definition, is a being that transcends uh, comprehension, right? So we can talk about what we think and what we, you know, we believe, and that's appropriate, but we have to do it from a place of humility, um, especially if you're someone who's going through deconstruction, um, because deconstruction is all about changing your mind and rethinking things, and you can't do that if you're certain. And so I, I even encourage people who are going through deconstruction um, in fact, I, I do this course called Square One that I walk, walk people through for like 12 weeks uh, through their deconstruction, help them figure out their reconstruction process. And I always at the beginning will tell them, hey, in all your deconstruction and all your theology, I'm going to just my advice is you need to also deconstruct your need to be right. Um, and so one way to do that is to embrace mystery and to hold loosely and to say, you know, um, I, I've changed my mind before. And so that means. Uh, I need to admit that I could be wrong about something. And so don't, uh, you know, Richard Rohr says, God doesn't fit into our boxes anyway, so don't waste your time defending your box. And But that's what most theology is, arguing, debating about, I'm right, you're wrong, my box is better than your box. God isn't in either of those boxes. So, um, you know, I think embracing mystery for me has been just something that's really set me free um, to explore 
a God who is way bigger than sometimes I think we allow God to be. And it gives me a lot of hope to think, to, to believe, and I really do, I think this is closer to reality, that there is way more of Christ for us to know and experience than we have known to this point, and that we will probably know in this lifetime. Mm. And that that should make you, I mean, it makes me excited. That's a good thing. Um, I, you know, I want to go back. So I think this is a really important statement. I don't want anybody to miss it. The opposite of doubt is... Opposite, opposite certain, of faith. The opposite, opposite of faith. faith. Opposite He's of faith is, is not doubt. It's certainty. Yes. Tell us a little more about that. What? How do you see, because most people would say, you know, be careful if you start doubting, yeah. some false teacher is going to swoop in and get you. Right. So how do you see certainty being the opposite of faith? Right. Well, because, I mean, to me, again, faith is, um, it's belief, right? You, it, there's this, you have a hope and you have a belief, um, but the minute you're certain about something, then you don't need faith for that, right? You know it. And, uh, and, you're, and there, there's no discussion. Right. Um, for me, faith, well, I should say doubt. Doubt is not a threat to faith. Um, and it shouldn't be. I think if anyone tells you that having doubts or having questions um, or curiosity about something um, outside of, of the sort of doctrines that you were handed growing up or whatever, the answers that you've been given, um, that that's not a threat to your faith. Uh, it's been my experience, and I think it's been probably yours and probably many of your listeners' experience that as you've, you know, the doubt is sort of the first thing that is the thread that you pull on as you begin your deconstruction journey. Like, well, what about this? Or I don't know about the that. The thread in the sweater, I always say, and then yeah. they just keep coming, right? Yeah. Right. So, I mean, again, my, in my experience, that question, that doubt, that uncertainty, is what has led me not away from God, not away from Christ. It's actually removed garbage that was in the way that had nothing to do with, with God or with Christ. So that now I'm actually able to see clearer and I'm moving forward, right? My whole Jesus Unseries really was an attempt to kind of take one of these major things, pillars sort of at a time, um, like the Bible or politics or church or, the, you know, um, the doctrines of hell or penal substitution and all these kinds of things. And say no. Let's take some time. Let's let's ask some questions. Let's really look into this. And what it's done for me, and I think for a lot of other people, is um, it's brought them nearer to God, not farther away. And so again, for me, the opposite of faith is not doubt. If anything, doubt is what is is increased my faith, <laughs> um, mm. my realization that God is bigger than I think and better than I think. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful for my doubts. And that, you know, there is the, there are those times when the Bible says, here's a mystery, you know, and, and yes. or, or Jesus says, you know, let him who can accept it, accept this teaching. Yes. And and to me, that that speaks of, well, there's a proverb that says it's the privilege of God to hide a matter and a privilege of a king to search it out. That's and right. so to me, it's like, if you're not searching the mystery of God, it, it, like you say, certainty then means I don't I don't have to seek God anymore. I've got a book that tells me all about it. You know? <laughs> right. And so here's here's the other thing that, that I think is fascinating along those lines, is um if if Jesus' goal was to communicate absolute you know certainties and facts, and you have to get this information absolutely correct, and you know hey disciples write this down and don't get it wrong, then you know telling stories that you don't ever explain the meaning to is not the right, the best way to communicate that. Right. But, but because Jesus tells parables, which are, um, they get you to think, right. They get you to question. They go, wow, what is, Ooh, what does that mean? And so if anything, Jesus style of teaching was to tell stories that would draw people in, would engage their imagination, would, would, um, sort of, um, touch on that nerve of, of curiosity and, and mystery, right? And I love that. And I think that's a clue for us. The, the other clue that I think that mystery is the way to go is when Jesus says, you know, that unless you become like little children, you will never see the kingdom. Well, I don't know if you've ever had kids, but if you ever noticed, like little kids especially, man, they're full of questions. They're constantly asking questions, right? They almost stop 
but what, but why, but why, but why, right? So curiosity and wonder, like this is something that it's, Jesus is saying, like, you got to get back to this. You've got to get, got to find again, this part of yourself that is like this little child that is full of curiosity and wonder that asks questions, right? That is, is comfortable with this mystery. And uh, I think it's critical. And the problem is like, um, most of the theology, at least that I grew up in, um, there's no room for that. There's no room no. for questions or doubt or, or uncertainty. Are you kidding? No, no, no. We we're all about the answers, right? We've got all the answers. Even if you're not, even if you didn't ask me the question, I'm going to go on and give you the answer, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I've just been so excited about sort of rediscovering this mystery of Christ and this mystery of the kingdom and of God that I really feel like that's what Jesus was inviting us into. And um, it's way more exciting to be moving. So you're not going to go to hell for asking questions. Then. I don't know. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've always thought like we talk about this omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. Yeah. All powerful, all knowing, all being. And, and then that God can't stand the scrutiny of questions. Like how, right. how tiny does a God have to be to say, you can never question me ever, you know? Right. Right. No, and that isn't even the example. Yeah, that's not even actually what we see played out in scriptures. Like it's even in the Old Testament, um, God is constantly being questioned, right? Um, You know, Moses is asking God, you know, why are you doing this and what are you doing? Abraham was like, well, well, wait a minute, God. Well, what about this? Could you change your mind if you do this? Could you change your plan if you if they if you find one righteous person, all that kind of stuff like it, and God is not upset about that. God is God welcomes the conversation. God welcomes the question. God welcomes the 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 um, interaction. Right. I think we are yeah. invited into that. We're expected to engage your brain, engage your curiosity. Um, I think God wants to be in that kind of a relationship with us, where it's not just blind. You know. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. I'm not going to. I'm going to check my brain at the door. Um, we are, we're welcomed into that kind of stuff. And I, I think it's right. great. I think that's where we begin to really experience God. And know, it's, it's a way about knowing God and knowing Christ that is not about information. I talk about this in the book. Uh, it, it requires a shifting. It, we have to shift from knowing, thinking about approaching knowing God or knowing Christ from what we've been told it's about, like, having the right information about God, knowing in the sense of I have the right information. But that's not even the way Jesus talks about it. Um, when Jesus, there's a, there's a verse in John where Jesus talks about how um, he says, this is eternal life to know God um, and his son or, or Christ, right? And that word for know, so there's two words for know, for knowing in the Greek. And one of them is episteme, which is information, right? So, if he had used, and he didn't use that word, if he had used episteme, then, then it would be correct to say, oh, what Jesus is saying is eternal life is to know the correct information about God, to have the right, all the right, you know, theological beliefs about God and, and about his son. And that's eternal life. And we act like that is what it means. But that is not the word he used. The other word for knowing is gnosko. And it's the word gnosko, and the Greek is the word that you would use to just, to talk about when um, a husband knows his wife and they conceive yeah. a child. That knowing is not information, my friend. <laughs> that is a knowing, and it's a scandalous statement. I mean, I think this is the thing. Again, yeah. we a lot of our English translations, we miss some of the scandal of it, some of the shock of it. I promise you, when Jesus said that, people went, <gasps> Because he just said, you know, eternal life is for us to have an intimacy with God. That like a sexual same, intimacy. Like yeah. a sexual intimacy, yes, with with God and with Christ. Like uh, the kind of intimacy that, that conceives new life within you. Yes, it's about transformation. It's not mm. about information. And I feel like in many ways we have been sold this version of the gospel that's about information and knowledge and doctrine, right? And belief and certainty. And, and it's not about that at all. Like the, the exciting thing to me was to discover that no, no, no. What Jesus is talking about is this experiential intimacy with God and with Christ. 
that isn't into this mystery of like, well, where's this going? I don't know. You know, it's <laughs> higher and wider and longer and deeper than you could possibly imagine. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, jump on in anyway. <laughs> Come on in, the dive tr- in. The Trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. We, we've That's said right. that quite, quite often. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I, I love it because, you know, when we're talking about an issue like, homosexuality and culture yeah. today. And you know, people always say, well, Jesus said marriage is between one man and one woman. And, and my response to that always is like, you know who disagreed with that? It, like King David disagreed with that statement. Abraham right. disagreed right. with that statement. Uh, Jacob, you know, all yeah. of the patriarchs. And so, you know, I, I've, I've always thought, well, there's got to be a different way to look at this. And, and like you say, God, Moses made his case and God changed his mind, the Bible said. Yeah. And, and so to me, we're supposed to be on a journey with what we know about God, on a journey with God. I guess the question then with that is, and I get asked this quite often, is how do we know then we're not going off into something cockamamie wrong if we don't have absolute truth? If you're taking away our absolute certainty, Keith, how do we know we're not uh, on a course to hell, uh, you know, or, or just right. believing something wrong? Right. Well, um, it is an interesting question, and yeah, I do get that a lot as well. Um, well, so here, here's the thing I, I think what's sort of behind the question, right? Because the person who would ask that question, what, what they're arguing for is, okay, Keith, what you're saying is dangerous. You shouldn't just, you know, trust your own ability to hear the voice of the Spirit of God. You know, you need you need to listen to what Pastor Bob says, right? Or these ordained ministers, ex- spiritual experts, people have training in seminaries and stuff. That's where the safety is, you know? Don't listen to God, the spirit of the living God. You think you can just talk to God directly and, and and you no, no, that's dangerous. That'll lead you off into the ditch. No, 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 the safe thing to do is just listen to what the pastor says on Sunday morning. He'll talk to God for you and tell you what to believe. And I'm like, are you kidding? No, that to me is dangerous. I, I'm not going to offload that to somebody else. And, but, and here's the other thing, too. Uh, it, inherent in the question is the assumption that, well, Keith, if you just, you know, just trust the Bible or you what's written in the Scripture or you just trust, you know, your denominational uh, statement of faith or your theolo- theological uh, leaders, you'll never get off. Really? Is that why we have like 30,000 different denominations around the world that all read the same book and yet they all went in different directions? Um, yeah. Or, you know, look at all the, I mean, in other words, when we look at the, the people that have followed that advice, have they never gone off base and never had horrible things happen and cults and, and the crusades and. Uh, we, yeah. We've been wrong uh, more often than we've been right. I yes. Think. So it's not like, and, and again, but at the same time, let me just be clear. I'm not saying that if you kind of take my advice and what I'm saying is like, you know, you know, learn, learn to develop your own ability to listen to the spirit of God. I'm not saying, oh, you'll never get it wrong. Look, we're human beings. Of course, our capacity for getting it wrong is endless. Of course, we can get it wrong no matter what we're using. But my point is that I think we have a better chance of getting it right if mm-hmm. we listen directly, learn to listen directly to the spirit of God. If Jesus says, Look, I am the good shepherd and my sheep can hear my voice. He's capable of communicating to us whatever he wants to communicate to us. So it isn't just my ability to hear. It's his ability to communicate, right? So I trust his ability, the spirit's ability to communicate to me. Um, if, If the spirit has been poured out on all flesh, as it says in Pentecost, young and old, men and women, right? Male, male and female, young and old, it doesn't matter who you are, um, there's so many verses in scripture that affirm that we have received the same anointing that Christ has received, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive and at work in you and me. So again, it's learning how to trust that. And again, I, I, I'm sorry, it's just where I'm at. I, 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 I'm not going to offload, you know, my spiritual growth and development to some random guy or person, right? Usually a guy. To let them tell me what I, what, here's what God wants me to tell you. Like, I hate when somebody comes to me and says, oh, I have a word from you from God. God wants me to tell you. Well, really? Because I, I think you should tell me. <laughs> 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 I, I spent a lot of time 
uh, listening and in, in direct communication myself. And um, yeah, unless what you say is like, oh yeah, you know what? That's cool. Cause I, that affirms something else that somebody else was saying or that, that I was, I was sensing too. Thank you for that confirmation. But uh, you know, if someone's like coming in at a left field and like, oh, God wants you to go to whatever and do this, like, really? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I <laughs> you know, Jesus said the, you know, the greatest commands were love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And in that, I sort of see this inherent, we live in relationship with the divine goodness of heaven, however we perceive God to be, and with each other. Like we're, yeah. so the the scripture sort of takes away that, that relationship aspect of, so what I always see is Acts 15, you know, you have Paul and, and James and these guys hanging out and they're like, no, you know, non-Jews cannot be Christians. And these guys are saying, I've seen Holy Spirit on them. You know, what are we, and, yeah. <laughs> and they wrestle with it and they come through to an end. And I think, you know, I always see it as James is like, well, let's give them a few Jewish rules to follow. So at least sure. we can hang out together, you know, or something. But so it's yeah. a very human-based process, which yeah. I know scares people to death. But I don't know, I guess I see the way we stay on course is, is we talk to each other and say, wow, I'm kind of, feeling like this means this, what do you think? And we wrestle it through together. How do you see that? Oh, no, I totally agree. Um, I think actually, so my friend, uh, there's a guy, um, he's been, become a good friend of mine. His name is Jim Palmer. And he and I were talking about sort of this idea too of like, how do we know, how do we learn how to discern what's true, right? When we're wrestling through things like this. So he came up with three things and I added a fourth. So his, his three things are, um, and we all do this, I, whether it's theological or whether it's, should I take my car to this mechanic or not? Right. Um, we, we run things through certain filters like, so, okay, direct experience, um, critical thinking, uh, self-reflection. And those are the three that, that Jim came up with. Right. So most of us on a daily basis are constantly evaluating whether something is right or wrong or true uh, based on those three things. What's my direct experience, apply some critical thinking to this and then do some self-reflection and then using those three things, I could probably determine what's what's right. I add a fourth thing, which is what you were saying, which is wrestling with other people. Like I, there are people in my life that I, I love them and I believe that they love me. They, they want what's best for me. They want, you know, they believe the good in me and I believe the best for them. And so um, I, I lean on and depend on the, the insight and the wisdom and the advice of, of that community of people. And so... Um, because I recognize, like Jesus said, we all kind of tend to have a blind spot, right? right? So when I'm looking at the the speck in your eye, I'm oblivious to the plank in my own. So I, I need a community of people to go, hey, Keith, um, let me just let you know, I, I see something that you might not see. But they're able to do that in love, and they do that in a way that they that their desire is for my good, right? They, they want what's best for me. And so I, I think for myself, that fourth uh, layer of determining what's right or wrong or true is is very very important. So for myself, mm -hmm. of course, I'm gonna I'm gonna apply some direct experience. I'm gonna do some critical thinking. I'm gonna do some self reflection. But I'm also gonna take that to these to a group of people that I believe I can bounce it off of them and go, hey guys, what, you know this is where I'm thinking. This was what I see. Uh, what do you think? Right? And then have a conversation. Right. Have some dialogue. And we can still disagree and hang out together, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Keith is giving us a lot of insight on uh, how to look at the Bible in deconstruction. Let me interrupt for just a moment and invite you to join me, Unconventional Pastor Paul, with our monthly Unconventional Conversations. We take a look at one of the nine issues of deconstruction that I have on my website. And this month, September 18th on Sunday night, we will talk about rethinking the divine, God and the Trinity, who are they and who am I? The info's on the website at pastor-paul.com. We only ask you sign up for a $5.99 subscription to get the link and you can cancel it at the end of the month or say, these are great conversations. I want to keep helping keep all of this going by staying as a subscriber. That's Unconventional Conversations with me, Unconventional Pastor Paul. Now, Back to our conversation with Keith Giles on this edition and part two of our conversation on the Post-Evangelical Podcast. Uh, it's really good stuff. I'm talking with Keith Giles. Um, we're going to talk more about ways to look at the Bible in our bonus podcast, and uh, including Keith's assertion that, hey, sorry, Paul didn't write all those books. And, <laughs> That's uh, and, it's not just my assertion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And 
and, uh, and, and his getting into the Gospel of Thomas, which I'm really intrigued about. But I do want to talk a little bit about the church today, Big C Church, and, and I guess the little C churches that come out of that big Christian uh, uh, belief system and, and even organization. And you were a pastor of a church and decided you kind of couldn't do that anymore and started to shift. Tell a little bit about how that came about and what that looked like in your life. Right. Yeah. So this was several years ago now. Goodness, probably like close to 15 years ago or so. Um, yeah. Um, so I've been licensed and ordained in the Southern Baptist Church in, in my sort of mid-20s and served on staff at different churches over the years. Uh, initially at Southern Baptist churches, you know, youth pastor, music minister, all that kind of stuff. Um, then my wife and I moved to California, Southern California. We got involved in the vineyard movement. Um, we ended up planting a vineyard church with some friends of ours from scratch. And that was a great experience I'd never done. We'd never planted a church before from scratch. So that was really good initially, really, really good. Um, and we were doing children's ministry and compassion ministry to the, to the poor in the community and loving that. And, um, but after about three and a half years of that, we started feeling, my wife and I started feeling, initially feeling like God was calling us to leave and to start a church. Uh, like that God was calling our family to start something new. And we were thinking about that and praying about that and excited about that. And um, initially thinking it was just going to be another vineyard kind of a church, right? Very, very traditional kind of a church. But, um, but then right around that time, um, we both came across this, read this article by a guy named Ray Mayhew. And it was called, had this great title, Embezzlement, the Corporate Sin of American Christianity. Um, but it was, it was essentially just an overview of the church history starting in the book of Acts in the first century and going through second century, third century, and documenting how the DNA of the early church really was caring for the poor in the community. And how, you know, we see how in, in, um, in the New Testament, how the offering is collected and laid at the feet of the apostles, um, not for building buildings or buying, you know, killer sound systems or flat screen, you know, uh, flat panel screens for, for the, uh, the uh, foyer or whatever, um, or to pay the pastors a salary or anything like that. No, 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 no. All, all of what we know from history is the offerings that were collected were uh, distributed to the poor and the orphan and the widow. And, and this was one of the most radical things that really propelled the growth of the early church. And this is coming from, and I, I also looked up a lot of this research uh, after I read that article myself and, and found the same, that this was this radical caring for the poor in the community was something that really was the fuel for the early church. So Wendy and I were feeling like that God was calling us to start a church like that, um, a church where I wouldn't take a salary, no one would take any salary, that all 100% of the offering would go to care for the people in our community who were living in poverty or struggling financially. And we did that. And we did that for like 11 years. Um, and it was, I always say, the best thing I ever did with the word church on it. So um, that experience, and when we did that, by the way, we did that, we did that without any sort of spiritual covering. We didn't have any denominational covering. We had no statement of faith. It was very, we lowered the bar to basically, do you love Jesus? Do you want to spend, is your idea of a great time spending hours talking about Jesus and uh, learning how to follow Jesus in your actual life? You're in, you're welcome. We don't care about any other theology that you may have. And we're not going to argue theology either. And um, so that was kind of the beginning of my journey outside of traditional church into something um, pretty radical, I think, for for most people, but it was wonderful. I, and it's so interesting. I've learned this from some of my Jewish friends who talk about how you can be an atheist and be a part of a Jewish religious community. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I just love that. I, I love, and and so same with us. We, we do sort of a Sunday morning online community and people have said, well, what is our statement of faith? And we've yeah. kind of wrestled with what, you know, what if we just did a couple of bullet points and every time we start doing it, I just get this nagging in my heart of like, those are going to become idols that we kill people for if we, you know, yeah, you know somewhere so you know, down me, the line. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just add. So there was the phase early on where we, our, our little house church was doing the same thing because some people did kind of feel like we needed something like that. And early on, I'm so grateful. Uh, one of my friends, one of the brothers in our group, his name is Brent. He just made this really powerful observation as we were having this conversation. And he said, you know, historically, every time the church has come up with 
a statement of faith in, in the hopes of bringing unity, what it's actually done is create a division. Mm-hmm. Because what you say is, well, we believe this, so you don't, well, you're out. And then that's why we have 30,000 something, whatever denominations, right. because right. that kept happening. So, so the truth is, those kinds of statements of faith don't really lead to unity. They lead to division. And even, even if you say, well, because this was my experience too, you know, when I was a part of traditional churches, you know, you have to you go to the new believers class and you get baptized. You, 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 uh, you have to sort of agree to a statement of faith. We believe boom, 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 boom. And you know what? So many times I know people that flat out have just admitted that, well, yeah, I signed the document, but I don't believe points three and five. <laughs> but but why did you agree to it? Why did you say, well, you know, I, I like it here. My kid, my kids like the youth group and my wife, you know, works in this in the office. And uh, I know I like the men's group. They they have, you know, cookouts on the weekend. So, you know what I mean? Like, so even then you have the illusion of agreement. We all agree on these things. But in reality, a lot of people really didn't believe those things. They just pretended that they did so they could belong and so that they could be welcome and accepted in the group. So for those reasons, we just felt like it, it wasn't helpful. Uh, it wasn't going to bring unity. And we did. We were going to end up excluding people from our fellowship, like before they even before we even got to meet them, because yeah. they would go, oh, you believe that? Oh, I don't believe that. Well, there's the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I even tell our people like I. I don't require you to be a Christian, you know, to yeah, be no, yeah. to be here. And and we take communion every Sunday. And I've I've had a few pastors like, how do you give communion to people who haven't uh, confessed Christ as their personal Lord and Savior? And I, I'm like, because it's about relationship. It's not about yes. uh, it's not about dogma. And yeah. and we're going to journey together. And, and it's funny because I hear I get a lot of people that well, if the atheists like you, then you know you're not doing it right. And I'm like, I think religious people told Jesus exactly that same thing. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. And you know, what's funny because we had once, so we had Muslims come and visit our group quite often when we were doing this and they felt totally comfortable and they always said they enjoyed it. They felt welcome. Um, We, one time we had, uh, talking about the communion thing, we had these kids, these students come over. One of our, one of the people in our group was an instructor at University of California, Irvine at UCI. And um, so he invited a couple of the students from from his class. They they actually asked him about where he went to church, and they were a part of the, some kind of like healing light cult. It was like really literally like some kind of a cult. It was really weird, but like five or six of them came to our group, and so we're like, okay, I don't know what's going on here, and um, we were going to share communion that Sunday. And so I went out of my way to explain what communion is, why we do it. I said, and what it means. I said, so what, what it means like is that if we take the bread, we are, we are understanding, we are taking the symbol of the body of Christ and we're eating it. So we're receiving the body of Christ into our life. And when we drink this juice, it symbolizes the blood of Christ. And when we drink this juice, we are saying that we receive the blood of the, 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 what the, the offering of Christ of what he did to give himself up for us. And we're saying, yes, we were, we accept that. And they all nod. And then we take communion and every one of them ate the bread and drank the juice. And I was like, how is that a bad thing? I think that's awesome that I, I was really clear up front about what this symbolized and what, what it meant to take it. They all understood that. And they all willingly said, yeah, I'll take Jesus. I'll take Christ. Awesome. I, <laughs> I, I don't feel bad about that at all. I, I mean, I remember growing up, my, my dad was pastor of our church, you know, and he would always, you know, take this unworthily and and oh, yeah. some some are sick and some die, you know. And so I was just yeah. confessing every sin I could think of so I could take yeah. communion and not die. Um, <laughs> you know, and I yeah. just, I, I, I think all of this is about that, that unworthy stuff. It's all about relationship. You know, Jesus said, yes. if you're, at the altar worshiping and you have an offense against your brother, leave your gift and go make it right with your brother. Like right. the relationship is more important than the form of worship that you're doing. Exactly. And so I have no qualms, no qualms about having people of any faith whatsoever taking communion with us and yeah. and, and doing it in respect of relationship. And 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 it, I think I think Jesus agrees. I, I I'm with you. <laughs> so we know 
the church is shrinking in the United States, I guess we could say for sure, and shrinking at record rates. Um, and, you know, the millennials are probably the least church generation ever, and then Gen Z right behind them even smaller. And and so things are going to change in these, these you know, the next 25 years for sure. What Where do you see God, if I, you know, where do you see the spirit of God leading the church, the big C church that are that claim Christ's name to be going in this next season? I don't know if that's an esoteric enough question for you, but how do you see yeah. church in this era? Well, and, and, and thank you for phrasing it that way, because like it's a different answer if you just ask me how church in general is going, because I think you just said it down, it's declining, although I don't think it'll ever go away. Um, but it, but the church that the Spirit of God is leading, now that's an inter- interesting question, because I, I think whatever that looks like, it's not going away. But I think it will look different. It will adapt. It will change. It'll 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 um, it's going to have to adjust, um, but in all the right ways. And I've seen so many examples of it. It's really encouraging to me because um, I mentioned the square one thing that I do. So uh, I, I'm talking to people all over the world and several times I've had some of them say, you know, I just found this brand new church in town and the pastor, you know, from the pulpit is saying that you know, uh, eternal torment isn't isn't the only way to think about that. Actually, that's not even really taught in the Bible. And then there's universal reconciliation. And I'm like, really? And then other people are like, oh, yeah, I found a, I found a new group. They're like, they, they're, they're standing up and they're saying, you know, it, this is a safe place for you to deconstruct, ask questions. You know, it's all about that. In fact, when we did an event, I just did an event earlier this year in Nashville at a church called Sparrow Day. And th- that whole church, I mean, they have Sunday. I, I watched some of their Sunday, uh, they live stream some of their services. And every Sunday, I mean, the guy's doing a series where it's like, let's rethink everything. He's like, every Sunday he takes another thing, like, well, you know, inerrancy of scripture or uh, eternal torment or penal substitution, like, and and openly, uh, you know, talking about these sort of deconstructed topics. And I think it's awesome. And I think, and I think the church, whatever the future of the church is going to look like, it's going to have to be a safe place to ask those questions, have those conversations, mm-hmm. and hold loosely, as I was saying to those doubts. It can't be dogmatic. It can't be, well, everybody here has to agree with this. It has to be, it has to shift to become, um, this church is a safe place to not be sure, <laughs> to not have it all figured out. And uh, and we love you no matter what, right? Come back next Sunday. We're okay with that. And so um, it, whatever, I mean, to me, I think that's what it's going to have to look like. And, and I think another level though, I think we're going to see um, sort of new expressions of something that initially we might even not even call it church, but yeah. like this Gen Z, you know, these younger generations of people, they're not going to play that game. They're not going to put on those hats. They're not going to go through those um, rituals that, that, that we do because we were raised in that. So I think a lot of them are just going to get together and hang out and maybe they're going to read the Gospels together, or maybe they're going to pray, or maybe they're going to—who knows? I mean, I can't even guess. I, I, no. I, it's not my—you know what I mean? It's outside of the box for me completely. But I think there's going to be genuine gatherings of younger people in the future that are that are beautiful, that are healing, that are that are definitely spiritual, that are drawing them nearer to a Christ-like view of God. And um, and I think when we see those things happening, we should encourage those things. Yeah. Yeah, I have a lot of a lot of pastors who ask, "Well, you're deconstructing. What are what are you building? You got to be building something on the other side." And I, and I'm a little bit like now, like, don't we just keep building the same thing over and over? Right. And and maybe it's time. Like, I, I guess I'm in a place where like I don't trust the boomers or Xers to build the next thing. I I, no. I feel like we're just supposed <laughs> to bridge this and give it to the millennials and Zers, the next generations, and say, "You guys." do with this what what the spirit of heaven leads you to do and otherwise yeah we're just going to keep building the same damn thing we've been building you know yeah and see that's a good point paul like if and it isn't there there's even a verse that says that right uh unless the lord builds the house the laborers labor in vain and i think that's kind of what we're talking about like we have built our own thing for so long and and god just keeps tearing it down and nope we build it again. Well, let's add more candles or, 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 you know, better songs. Now tear that down. Well, let's do this. I'm going to tear that down. Yeah. 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 So I think it's better to just like take your hands off and just wait and see what is the spirit of God going to do 
and just do that. And I don't know. Uh, I don't think I'm, I'm probably the last person to tell you what that's going to look like. Um, yeah. I, I'm just determined. I don't want to build it. I don't. I don't want to try to put my hands on it. Um, but I hope I have my eyes open to see it when it when it happens. Yeah, I, I kind of always point to the disciples saying, "Wow, look at these buildings, Jesus!" And he's like, "You know what? Aren't Not one stone of those things are going to stand on another." And and the thing he doesn't say, I always point this out to people. He doesn't say, "Pray that that doesn't happen." You know, pray that no. the, the church will be preserved. He's yes. like, "No, it's going to go away," and that's a good thing because, yeah. like he told the Samaritan woman, it's not this or that. It's going to be something totally different. And I, right. so I, yeah. I'm totally with you. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and what he's what he points us to is this idea that the day is coming when those who those people will worship God in spirit and in truth. Yeah. And again, so that's outside of a system or a religion or an organization or a building or, you know, any of those typical things. It, it's people. It's the whole new covenant. Right. I will be their God. They will be my people. They will all know me directly. And, and again, that's what I was saying about before. Like we have this beautiful gift and promise that Jesus has in, inaugurated and initiated. And the whole thrust of that is every one of us having our own incredible direct experience with the creator of the universe. And that's awesome. And I, I think mm. that's what, that's what I'm trying to encourage people to do um, and to discover for themselves. Fascinating conversation. We're going to continue it for those of you who are our subscribers to our Pastor Paul community from our website, pastor-paul.com. And I'm going to talk with Keith about inerrancy of scripture. How do we deal with it when we sort of unmoor ourselves from that belief system? What books did Paul write and which ones did he not? And also delving into the Gospel of Thomas, which I've been seeing Keith writing about. So all that's in our bonus podcast. If you go to my website, you'll uh, find out how to sign up and get there. The book is Sola Mysterium, Celebrating the Beautiful Uncertainty of Everything. Where do people find the book and where do they find you? Yeah, so it'll be available on Amazon June 28th um, in print and in Kindle. Audiobook usually takes about a month or so, uh, but eventually it'll be on Audible as well. Um, and so uh, you can find me. My blog is keepchiles.com. That takes you to my Pathios blog. And, and that Inner Circle blog series I'm doing that's uh, on the Gospel of Thomas is there too. Uh, and I'm on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I also do some podcasts real quick. I have a Second Cup with Keith, which is a solo podcast you can find. And uh co-host uh, the Apostates Anonymous podcast, and I also co-host the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Uh, which wow, you are yeah. busy. I do a lot of podcasting, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll talk to those of you on the bonus podcast here in just a bit, but Keith, really love talking to you today. Thanks for giving us your time. Paul, thank you so much. It was great. All right, so we'll end the, the public uh, podcast there. Uh, we got Jay in the comments saying, we're almost there. We've almost got it. So that's really, thanks, Jay, for, All for right. rooting us on as we figure it out, right? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are you ready to start the bonus podcast, or do you need a, a quick break? No, no, bring it on. I'm ready. Okay. All right, welcome to our bonus podcast. I'm with Keith Giles, the author of the Jesus Unseries, Unbound, unexpected, all of those things. And uh, as we mentioned in the public podcast, the new book is Sola Mysterium, celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything. And we just had a, a wonderful conversation about where the church is going and the beauty of uncertainty. And uh, part of the uncertainty for me in deconstruction has been, what if the Bible inerrant in its English translations, as I was taught it was growing up, isn't quite so true. And you you talked in the public podcast about the string and that we start pulling on. And yeah. and and for me, the in, it was in pastoral training and learning how the canon had been compiled, the Protestant canon, as we know it, the 60, 66 books of the Protestant canon, that really shook me up. Like, yeah. wow, this was a very human process. So talk a little bit about how you look at the Bible now, how you look at at biblical inerrancy, and how has that been an, an impacting factor in your deconstruction of, of your beliefs? Yeah. Well, yeah, Paul, I mean, to me, the whole the Bible is a foundational thing um, for, for most people, I think, in their deconstruction. And in my Jesus Un series, it's the second book that I wrote in the series, Jesus Unbound. Um, it's all about the Bible and inspiration and, and inerrancy and all that. Um but, but I recommend people, usually people say, if they haven't read the series, and they're like, well, which one should I start with? And like, I usually will say, well, 
I'd start with Unbound because it's such a foundational thing, the way you approach the Bible, right? I think it changes everything. So um, so for me, let's just talk quickly about that approach because the, the way I was raised and probably the way you were raised um, was there was only one way to approach the Bible and it was really typically what we call a flat Bible approach, right? So what that means is that there's one book, basically, and God wrote it, right? God wrote the Bible and uh, he dropped it out of the sky, bound in Corinthian leather, and it's like, you know, title page, the Bible, author, God. And so every word in this book is equally authoritative and, and powerful and true and inspired, et cetera, all those, all those words. And, and, and thus so, we can say came from the mouth of Jesus. Yes, yes, exactly. So, so uh, but, you know, but then uh, when you have that approach, and uh, you probably ran into this, I ran into it all the time, especially as a pastor and a teacher, because people would come to me all the time and say, Keith, I'm really confused because, you know, I, the Bible is the word of God. And I was reading last night over here in the Old Testament and God said this horrible thing. I'm like, well, that's God speaking. It says, thus saith the Lord. But then how does that match up with over here when Jesus says something like kind of the opposite of that? Like, and if you have a flat Bible approach, good luck making that work because you're, you're stuck because like they're both the word of God. And so God is either confused or uh, schizophrenic or, you know, he, he changes yeah. his mind. Like, oh, I believe, oh, it's this. Oh, no, it's this. No, it's this. No, it's that. Like, oh, well, I, I, I this unpredictable. Or, or we just, just assume that it's okay that those conflict and, and we'll understand right, yeah. it one day. You know, he used to think slavery was fine and guys marrying a woman and her sister and, you know, 45 other women. That was okay. And taking, you know, taking women as spoils of war, teenagers, and, you know, used, you know taking them as, as concubines. He was cool with that. You know, like, Okay, genocide, <laughs> yeah. wiping out so, people groups. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So, um, but that, 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 those are the challenges of taking the flat Bible approach, right? And so this was a critical part of me, for me, approaching the Bible uh, in it's so much better way of looking at the Bible. Um, and I kind of came across it accidentally. I was doing research on um, the early church and I came across... Um, it's actually a friend of mine recommended this book. It's called The Reformers and Their Stepchildren by a guy named Leonard Verdun. And in that book, he was, he was actually talking about the tension between um, the reformers like Calvin and Luther and those guys and this other group of people called the Anabaptists. And what he pointed out was that the, the, the main disagreement, the main place where they, they had a conflict was the way they approached the Bible. So he said, you know, pointed out how, well, the reformers, Luther and Calvin and those guys, they took a flat Bible approach and they explained it like I just did. And I'm like, yeah, that's the only way, right, to approach the Bible. But then he said, but the Anabaptists approached the Bible from a Christ-centered view. And in their view, um, the Bible wasn't flat, that we had Jesus, that Jesus was, as it says in the Gospel of John, the only one who has ever seen God at any time. It's, well, actually it actually says the other way. No one has ever seen God at any time, it says the Gospel of John, except for the Son. And this is why Jesus says, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at me. He doesn't say, read Genesis or Isaiah. Right. He's, so, so in other words, there's this radical thing that's happening with Jesus that the Anabaptists noticed that, oh, Jesus is correcting their their false, their their wrong ideas of who God was, because up until that point, all they had was the Old Testament scripture. They thought that that was an accurate picture of God. So Jesus shows up to correct the misunderstanding. It's why he can say, if you want to know what God is like, look at me, not the Old Testament. Um, uh, and th this is not the only place this happens. It's, it's all through the scripture, the New Testament. Um, it, it's expressed in different ways. Another way is when Paul says, he says, to this day, a veil covers our eyes whenever we read the Old Testament scriptures, because only in Christ is the veil removed. Okay, I'm going to paraphrase what that means. If you try to understand the Old Testament scriptures apart from Christ, you are guaranteed to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. Because apart from Christ, the, the veil is not removed. So you cannot read the Old Testament without first understanding Christ, 
or you're, Paul says you're going to get it wrong. You're going to be confused. So um, the uh, another uh, place where we see, I think, one of the most powerful images uh, of where we're told to take a Christ-centered approach to Scripture is on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And and uh, the, this is so beautiful because I never noticed this before. But um, but then when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, they, he's glorified in their presence. They're like, oh my gosh, wow. And then he's, they see him standing with Moses and Elijah. And it's not an accident that it's Moses and Elijah. Mm-hmm. Moses stands for the law. Elijah stands for the prophets. So you actually have Jesus, Moses, and the prophets, right? And, Paul, and Peter makes the flat Bible mistake. He says... This is awesome. I want to let's build three tabernacles. We will honor all three of you equally. Right? Flat right. Bible. Jesus, right. Right. all the prophets. And God's response is he removes Moses. He takes Elijah. The only Jesus remains. And God speaks these words. This is my son. Listen to him. And it's mm. over. That's yeah. the entire point of the Mount of Transfiguration experience. Listen to Jesus. Listen to my son, not Moses, not Elijah. You start with Jesus. Now that's radical for a lot of people. Like what? Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I feel nervous. What are you saying? But again, <laughs> over and over and over again, this is what's emphasized in the New Testament. It is this radical idea that we are following Jesus. No one has seen God at any time. That includes Moses and all those Old Testament prophets. That's why Jesus begins his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount saying, you have heard it said, and then he quotes the Old Testament, and then he says, but I say to you, corrects this over and over and over again. So it's a myth that Jesus shows up and is just basically the Old Testament with a cross on top. That Not at all. Jesus comes and radically um, challenges a lot of the th- ideas that are in the Old Testament. He gives us a brand new, better picture of, of God, the Father, when he gives us this prodigal son parable. Um, a God who is not doesn't respond with wrath the way that his Jewish listeners are like when they first heard that story of the prodigal son they're waiting for the wrath oh man when that kid comes home here it comes and <laughs> wait wait what he right. runs out to meet him put takes his robe off his shoulders and wraps it around him takes the ring off of his finger and get that's like giving him his own authority he gives it to this son who is this you know insulted him. And says, let's have a party. Let's celebrate. The only person in that story who demands justice, who demands punishment, it's not the father. It's the son. It's the, the other brother. brother. Right? It's the yeah. other brother. And and I'm sorry, those are the Pharisees, right? Those are the ones going, whoa, where is that? So, again, over and over again, Jesus is giving us a better picture, an accurate picture of what the father is like. Um, we're supposed to listen to him. Now, it doesn't mean we throw out the Old Testament. All right, this conversation with Keith isn't over. On our next episode, we're going to ask Keith how he views the Old Testament and why does God seem like such an angry guy in the Old Testament and a little bit nicer in the New Testament? How do we handle those Hebrew scriptures? Maybe we should throw them out altogether, you think? We'll talk with Keith about it on the next edition of the Post-Evangelical Podcast. In the meantime, if you're a subscriber at the website at pastor-paul.com, you can get that episode right now. It's available already. Otherwise, you'll have to wait till we release part two to hear that, or you can go subscribe right now at pastor-paul.com. Either way, don't forget my message to you is that God is not mad at you. We'll see you next time on the Post-Evangelical Podcast. Take care.